please uh, turn with me to the book of Revelation. Uh, we have on our Lord's Day mornings been in a study of uh, Revelation and more particularly in past weeks, a study in Revelations chapter 2 and 3 and the letters to the seven churches. Today is the fifth letter to the seven churches that we are considering, the letter to the church in Sardis. We'll find it in Revelation chapter 3 and verses 1 through 6. Uh, The city of Sardis was a city about 30 miles southeast of the city that we considered last week, Thyatira. So if you make your way uh, through these seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3, you go kind of in a a semicircle, a clockwise semicircle, and so that's uh, the direction that we're headed in as we consider Sardis. Uh, Sardis itself had been, a, in the past, especially a very wealthy and prosperous and secure city. Uh, centuries prior to this, it was considered the Queen of Asia. Uh, the city, uh, however, through its history, had been conquered on two different occasions in 546 B.C. by Cyrus, and then in 214 B.C. by Antiochus, and uh, both of these times uh, their city was conquered through their own lack of diligence and watchfulness. But the city in uh, the first century was still a rather wealthy uh, and prosperous city, and the church would have reflected this. Uh, There was a church which enjoyed a certain kind of outward prosperity. Uh, They were marked by a kind of peace, but also, as we're going to see, a kind of lethargy and pride. Those also are going to be uh, found in this uh, particular congregation. And so with that as background, let's uh, consider now the letter to the church in Sardis of Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This ends this reading in God's word. Let's now once again seek his help in prayer. Lord, we truly can do nothing apart from you. Um, And Lord, even if we are to hear this message aright, 
In order for this message, Lord, to sink into the depths of our hearts, not merely to go in one ear and out the other, Lord, it does take a mighty work of your Spirit. So we do pray that, Lord Jesus, you who hold the seven spirits of God and the seven stars in your hand, Lord, would you not come and draw near and make your word alive to us today. Give us responsive hearts and meet with us. O Lord, might it be that we who have ears would hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We pray in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. In the 1870s, a structure that was declared the eighth wonder of the world was constructed over the East River that separated Manhattan from Brooklyn. Well, that structure, of course, was the magnificent Brooklyn Bridge. It was a feat of engineering that was without equal in its day. However, the chief engineer of that project, a man named Washington Roebling, was not able to leave his bed for the last several years of construction. You see, very early in that project, Mr. Roebling had made repeated trips, often several times a day, to the underwater chamber called the Kyson that served as the the foundation for the bridge at the bed of the river. Uh, But that continual change uh, of pressure resulting from these trips brought upon a sickness that was popularly called the bends, a malady that killed some, but that left Mr. Roebling essentially paralyzed uh, with tremendous headaches and other physical symptoms for many, many years. And so for several years, the project went on, but its chief engineer never left his upstairs bedroom of his home. And from that bedroom, he could watch the project being built about a mile away. Uh, He had a remarkable wife, his wife Emily. Uh, She handled all of his correspondence, interviewed visitors, met often with assistant engineers uh, on behalf of her husband, and handled many of the day-to-day operations of the building of that bridge. In fact, Mr. Roebling was so hidden from public view that newspapers began to speculate whether he was still living at all. And so they said, well, is he entirely incapacitated? Is this bridge being built by his wife instead? But in reality, behind the scenes, Mr. Washington Roebling was very much in control of the building of that bridge. In fact, so masterful was his grasp of engineering, and so thorough was his understanding, and so sharp was his mind at envisioning solutions to every problem that they might encounter, that though His wife, Emily, was serving as a secretary and go-between. Nonetheless, Roebling was in constant correspondence with his assistant engineers. And he served very capably as the engineer of the Brooklyn Bridge. Historian David McCullough calls Roebling's feat of building the Brooklyn Bridge and absentia one of the most remarkable accomplishments of all time. You see, Washington Roebling had a reputation that he was dead, but in reality, he was very, very much alive. But the church at Sardis that this letter was written to had exactly the opposite problem. They had the reputation that they were alive by many outward indications, 
uh, by the number of people perhaps that were coming to the church, by its uh, outward forms and ceremonies, by its uh, 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 seeming prosperity and wealth. It had the reputation of being alive. But in reality, the Lord Jesus, who knew what was really going on and knew the heart and the condition of the people, here declares that they were dead, that they were in danger of dying. Uh, One writer has said that this uh, church at Sardis enjoyed peace, but as Christ will reveal, it was the peace of of a cemetery. And indeed, how surprising it must have been when this messenger arrived, delivering this letter from the Apostle John, in which the Lord Jesus Christ reveals the real condition of the church at Sardis. And he tells them, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Well, dear friends, the message that he sends to this church is one which the church in every age needs to hear. It's a warning of what can happen to the church of Jesus Christ. So I want us to consider this today under three different headings, three different things. First of all, we are going to consider the church's real spiritual condition unveiled. Secondly, the path to spiritual restoration charted. Thirdly, encouragements to spiritual vitality provided. Uh, the church's real spiritual condition unveiled, the path to spiritual restoration charted, encouragements to, to spiritual vitality provided. So first of all, the church's real spiritual condition unveiled. Again, Christ's summary of this church's uh, condition, as we find it here in verses uh, 1 and 2, is that they have the reputation of being alive. It seems in many respects, by outward indications, that this is an alive church. But Jesus says, inwardly, you are dead. And he gives further explanation of this then in verse 2 of what he means when he says that I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. That word there for complete is a word which could mean filled or fulfilled. He's saying, as I look upon your works, it's not just that they aren't perfect. None of us have perfect works in the sight of God. We uh, all uh, have even our best works are mixed with sin in this life. But he's looking at their works and he's saying, it's not just that they aren't perfect, but rather that they, as it were, are unfulfilled, or they are empty, they are insubstantial. That is, no matter how impressive these works look in the sight of others, before the face of God, they are insubstantial. There's an outward shell, as it were, of works that have no inward life or no inward heart. What Christ is revealing here is a church that is beset with what we might call formalism. That there's an outward formality to their life, but there's no inward vitality. 
Or another word we might use to describe it is the problem of nominalism. That these were Christians in name only. That by profession they were Christians, but there was no substantial reality behind their profession. Well, this problem of formalism and nominalism isn't a new issue. It had been addressed by the prophets of the Old Testament. You might remember Old Testament Israel, especially in the, the, the 800, 700, 600s uh, BC. They had their temple. They performed the outward rituals of the temple service. They uh, performed sacrifices and incense was raised. They were dutiful worshipers. And yet many of the prophets of the Old Testament unveiled their real condition of a kind of formalism. Isaiah 29, 13, This people draws near to me with their mouth and honors me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And it was a dangerous spiritual condition to be in. Uh, Jesus' own rebuke of the Pharisees was a rebuke over a very similar state, that the Pharisees, again, outwardly, right, appeared to be a very religious people. They were engaged in a, a constant stream of religious activity. And yet, when Jesus looked at the Pharisees' lives, he said about them, you are like whitewashed tombs. Outwardly, you appear beautiful, but you go inside and you're full of dead men's bones and all kinds of uncleanness. What a criticism this was. Well, it's a similar rebuke that is being given to the church at Sardis. Here is a mere formal church. Here are nominal Christians. Well, the problems of Old Testament Israel and of the church at Sardis are very common problems in the church of Jesus Christ uh, today. Like Sardis, we are often in danger of measuring success by all the wrong kinds of measures. Sometimes we look at a church and we might think, well, that is a really good church. What is meant by that is often that it has a growing attendance, lots of people going to it, uh, lots of money perhaps, strong financial uh, position, uh, a church that has various programs and activities, uh, perhaps a beautiful building, uh, perhaps an old stately building or brand new beautiful facilities, uh, we can sometimes measure a church's success by the quality of the music that is performed or played <clears throat> or by a preacher that appears to be personable or funny or engaging. Uh, uh, we sometimes consider a church's impressive uh, history or rich institutional position in, in, a, in, a, in a location or a church's popularity, uh, either uh, 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 by people's testimony or by uh, uh, their, their tweets and other online activity. okay. Uh, and we look at these things and we, we say, well, that must be a good church. Well, dear friends, many of those things are good things, positive things. But in themselves, they are no mark of spiritual vitality. And it's similar in our own personal lives. Sometimes we measure success by the wrong things. 
If we think about our own lives and we're in a position where we are financially stable or we seem to be generally happy in life or we're enjoying success at work or our kids are enjoying success in school or at work. And we look at that and we say, yeah, life is good. I'm doing well. Now, again, many of those things are positive things. We're grateful for them. But are they in themselves a mark of spiritual vitality, of what's really important? And the answer is no. That you can have, as a church or as an individual, all of the things that we just listed, and yet this, uh, 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 this conclusion can still, be, still can come to. You have a reputation of being alive, but in reality, you are dead. And so what are the marks, then, of real spiritual vitality? Well, as a church, one of the marks is that it would be a place where the gospel is passionately and faithfully preached. But not only passionately and faithful gospel preaching, but such passionate and faithful hearing of the gospel as well. That spiritual vitality occurs not only when the outward forms of worship are followed, but when we passionately long and desire to worship God with our hearts. A mark of spiritual vitality also is a desire to serve God. Not thinking of, oh, what are the things that I have to do for God, but oh, what are the opportunities I have to serve him in his world, word and world, and, and there's a, a, a zeal about serving him. Similarly, there should be a longing to know Jesus Christ and to have fellowship and communion with him, not to go through merely the, the forms of religion, but rather to know Jesus himself. That ought to be the heart cry that we have. Similarly, there should be a strict adherence to his commands where we can say that his testimonies are my delight. Another mark of spiritual vitality is a humble submission to God's will when times of testing and trial come. Can I take these things as from a father's hand and learn to trust him amidst uh, these trials in life? Similarly, there should be a zeal for the spread of the kingdom, a kind of uh, missionary fervor, a desire to give testimony to what Jesus has done for my own soul, and to hear about the ways that the church of Christ is spreading throughout the world. And so there ought to be this kind of kingdom uh, desire. Similarly, there ought to be a deep sorrow over sin, that when we sin, that we are cut to the heart and we confess that sin and we long to come to the place of repentance. And also there should be an earnest love for God's people. Do you love other Christians simply because they're Christians? They're your brothers and sisters in Christ and you long to know them better and to enjoy fellowship with them and and, and you delight when you see others coming to faith and growing in the Lord. Friends, these are the kinds of things that are the mark of real spiritual fervency, of inward spiritual life. 
That's what the church at Sardis was not exhibiting. They had all the outward things in place. But it was an empty shell. That's what it was. They had a reputation that they were alive, but there was no life. No real spiritual life in them. And it bears us asking today as well, is there such spiritual life in us? Are we looking for the right things, the things which we ought to be in terms of what real spiritual life is? Is there that kind of inward vitality of a closeness of communion and fellowship with Jesus? Is there a longing to grow in Him and a desire for the glory of His name? Is that what we are marked by? Even as a church, are those the things that we are marked by above all else? Might it be so? That's what we ought to desire. See here that the Lord Jesus Christ unveils the real spiritual condition of this church. But now secondly, I want us to consider the path to spiritual restoration charted. He has accurately described the real condition of the church in Sardis. And insofar as this describes us as well, if we are mere formalists or nominalists, what is it that we should do? If we are on the verge of dying spiritually, What does the Lord call us to do? And here in verses 3 and 4, there are a variety of, uh, especially, uh, actually, excuse me, verses 2 and 3, a variety of imperatives that are given. A variety of imperatives that are given. And friends, it's, it's important that we hear these things. You know, if you were to go into the doctor's office today, or tomorrow, say, doctor suddenly calls you, wants to meet with you, and you had just been in there a few weeks ago, and they say there are certain things about our visits that have us deeply, deeply concerned. You were to go, and they were to take various tests, and then the doctor sits down with you and says, you know, you are really on the verge of dying. You have a disease. You didn't know that you had it, but you have it. Uh, And this is what you ought to do. Well, as soon as the doctor says, and this is what you ought to do, you're going to be all ears, right? It's going to matter to you. Because you don't want to die. Well, so it is with this. The Lord Jesus is saying, if this is your condition, you are on the verge of dying spiritually. You're merely formal. What is it that you should do? Well, dear friends, we need to be all ears for this spiritual prescription, this spiritual remedy. And let's hear what the Lord Jesus himself says. Five things here. And the first of those five prescriptions is this. He says to us, wake up. (laughs) Okay, we see that in verse 2, right? Wake up. Wake up. It's it's, uh, really a a word that, that can just also be translated, be watchful. Be Uh, spiritually alert, be spiritually aware, get up from the doldrums that you're in. And this is sometimes the very first step for those who are spiritually lethargic. It's like having just some, uh, a a cup of cold water thrown on your face, right? Sometimes that's what you need. (laughs) And you just need a moment of awakening where you say, yes, I am dead. 
wow, I need to pay attention. I need to be watchful. And that's the first question that he asked. Do you have an accurate assessment of your own spiritual condition before the Lord? Wake up to where you really are. But the second thing then that he tells us to do is this. He says, strengthen the things that remain. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. And here he's saying this. He's saying, um, all maybe isn't yet lost. Uh, there are perhaps some aspects of your spiritual life which are not yet totally dead. Maybe for you, it's that you still go to church or you crack open a Bible. Maybe it is that you teach uh, your children still some things out of the Bible. Uh, perhaps it's that at times, occasionally, you have a longing for Christ and at times your heart burns with at least a small flame of love for Him. And he's saying, uh, don't let these things die out, but rather kindle the flame, feed it some oxygen, strengthen those things that yet remain. So strengthen the things which remain. The third thing that he says to them is to remember. This is in verse 3. Remember then what you have, what you received and heard. It's the same direction that was given to the saints in Ephesus. Uh, Revelation 2 and verse 5. Remember, he tells them, from where you have fallen. And here he says, remember what you have received and heard. Now there's a kind of forgetfulness that often accompanies spiritual deadness. And there's a kind of remembrance that is the first steps to real repentance. You need to remember and not forget. Remember God's amazing grace to you at your conversion in which He saved you from willingly flying headlong into hell. Remember the Lord's long-suffering patience with you. How He was with you in the midst of trials. Remember how kindly and gently He has dealt with your soul. Remember the promises of His Word. Remember the privileges that He has given you. Remember those uh, spiritual glories that you've experienced. Remember your own baptism and the covenant blessings that were given there. Remember the times when you've had a renewed experience of His love at the table. Remember how Christ has continually interceded for you. Remember these things He's saying to you. Remember those riches that you have received. That's why we just sang that song, My Heart is Filled with Thankfulness. And I just love the hymn that we sang because line by line it goes through and tells us the things uh, that we are filled with thankfulness, the innumerable blessings of the Lord. And friends, those are the things that we need to remember. We're in danger of forgetting those. And when we forget, we cease to be thankful. When we forget... We are on the verge of dying. We always need to remember. Remember our Savior and who He is and all that He has done. Remember. So wake up. Strengthen the things which remain. Remember. Fourthly now, hold fast. Hold fast. It says in our 
translation on verse 3. Remember what you have received and heard and keep it. Keep it. Again, another translation as hold fast. And the idea is this, that as we remember, as we catch that glimpse again of our God and our soul begins to warm with Christ, uh, hold fast to it. Don't let it go. You know, so often, um, we, we might have kind of spiritual impulses that, that are here for a moment. We feel very close to God for a day. And then, and then tomorrow, we fall again back into the same sins. The same uh, uh, backslidings. And he's saying to us, no, hold fast. Stay close to this God. Don't let go. Be steadfast. Endure. Isn't that one of the great callings that we have to endure, to keep on enduring? But then the fifth thing that he says is this. He says, fifthly then, you need to repent. See that in verse 3? Keep it and repent. Now, repentance, friends, is, merely, is more than merely saying that you're sorry, but rather repentance is a turning from sin unto God. It's confessing our sin, seeking Him for mercy, and setting our face to walking obediently in His path. I simply ask you, do you believe that the lethargy of your own soul is sin? If so, and you ought to, repent. Repent of it. And turn decisively away. So that's what Christ comes and He says, this is the remedy. This is what you must do to keep from dying spiritually. To to bring life into your mere formalism. Do these five things. And He's serious about this because He says to us, If you do not do this, if you do not heed this call, if you remain in your state of sleepiness, well, he tells us what happens at the end of verse 3. I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now, he may be talking here about Christ coming at His final judgment. We know that the Lord Jesus Himself and elsewhere in Scripture, this language of uh, coming like a thief in the night is used to describe uh, the second coming of our Lord. He's going to come at a time when the world around us is not looking for Him to come. It will be a surprise to them. So perhaps He's speaking about His second coming, but I think even more than that, He's speaking about Other times as well, when he might come as a judge, even prior to his coming again. For some, it's going to be a sudden death. None of us knows the hour of our departure, and suddenly a life can be taken like that when they don't expect it. And a person faces their creator, their maker, often unprepared. For others, it might be a sudden uh, 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 time of, uh, of, of uh, uh, sickness or trial that's part of the Lord's uh, judgment upon them. Or He may judge you, and this is sometimes how He does it, by handing you over to your sin, Romans 1, so that your heart becomes so hard so that you have no desire to repent even. And you're so spiritually dead 
that you don't even, can't begin to hear the calls of the Savior. That's how he might judge you as well. But that's the point here, is that this Lord Jesus is going to come when you are not expecting it, and he will bring judgment. And so that's why you need to hear this call today. All of you, do not put off this calling of the Lord Jesus when he says uh, to repent and to turn to him and to seek for life. And so I simply ask you, are you heeding Christ's word? Are you listening to what he says? Will you turn to him and seek that kind of spiritual closeness and fellowship with your Lord? Okay, He gives us this kind of remedy, this kind of a spiritual path that he has charted for us. But now third and finally, third and finally, I want us to see some encouragements to spiritual vitality provided. Encouragements to spiritual vitality provided. Okay, He's diagnosed our condition. He's given us the remedy. But now at the end of this passage, he gives us a number of incentives to pursue this remedy, to pursue spiritual vitality and life with the Lord, to say, Lord, whatever happens to me, make it so I'm not a mere formalist. I'm not merely a nominal Christian. What incentives does he give us? Well, he gives us a number uh, in verses 4 through 6. Three in particular I want to point out, three encouragements that he gives to us. Uh, The first of those encouragements is the encouragement of recognition. We find this in verse 4. A recognition. It says, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Here he's saying, amidst a church that was in large measure spiritually dead, there were still some in this congregation in Sardis who were not lethargic, but instead were very much alive. And the Lord says, amidst this dead church, I know exactly who you ones are that are alive. The eye of Christ is upon them. And what a beautiful thing that is. That the Lord knows his people. And he sees those who have remained uh, faithful. Do you know, one of the hardest things I think in the Christian life to do is to walk with a kind of spiritual vitality with the Lord when you are surrounded by deadness. I think it's especially hard, or it's hard to live as a Christian when you're surrounded by a world that reproaches you. It's much harder even to live as a Christian when you're surrounded by professing Christians who reproach you. And yet that's the very thing he's calling these Christians to do in Sardis. He's saying, the rest of the church says, it's fine to just go through with these formal ceremonies. Just, just go through the motions and you're going to be fine with God. That's... That's what a church is. It's all you have to do. And here are some Christians who are saying, no, it's more than that. And they're trying, they're seeking to walk with a closeness of fellowship to the Lord and to witness to others and so forth. And the Lord Jesus says, I have my eye upon you. I know who you are. You're precious to me. What a beautiful thing that is. He says, 
Uh, these are ones who will walk with me in white. We're going to come to that language in just a moment. Of uh, White is of purity, of, uh, of victory. And he says they are worthy. Again, they're worthy not in themselves, but they are worthy as those who have been filled with the Holy Spirit, changed by the Spirit of Christ. And they are walking with God. You know, God's people are often called to be, as it were, a small remnant. You think in uh, Noah's day. And the world all around Noah was turning to sin, and the Lord was going to destroy it all with a giant flood. And he saved just Noah and his family by way of the ark. Or you think of righteous Lot in that unrighteous city of Sodom, surrounded everywhere he looked by ungodliness, and yet the Lord knew Lot, and he preserved him to a place of safety. Similarly, the Lord Jesus says to his disciples in the New Testament, Luke 12, 32, Fear not, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And here his eye is on these few who are seeking to serve the Lord. Young people, I have a word for you. Sometimes when you're a Christian teenager, uh, at times you're going to know other teenagers who are Christian, but they're it's only a profession that they have. They say that they're Christian, but then they're living in all sorts of ways that are not pleasing to the Lord. And the easy thing is, is to just kind of walk in step with them. Well, together, we'll put on this show of outward Christianity. We'll go to church. We'll, we'll say that we're Christians and so forth, but we're going we're gonna to live like the world. That's, that's the temptation. Well, what Jesus calls you to do is something much more, is much higher than that. It is to a sincere Christian walk. It's to saying no to every form of sin, no matter how many friends you have that are engaging in those sins. It's to say no to it. It's to walk with Jesus Christ where you are at, even if it means that you're different. And you know what? When you do that, the Lord Jesus knows who you are, and he's walking alongside of you. And it's a beautiful thing. That's what you're called to do. There's recognition. What an encouragement that is. Recognition. But then there's a second encouragement that's given, and this is the encouragement of a reward. Of a reward. We find this in verse 5. In in verse 5, there are a number of expressions that describe the true Christian's heavenly reward. These are the riches that we should really be seeking And uh, there are three rewards here that are primarily uh, listed. He says, first of all, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. A number of times in the book of Revelation, we are going to see that Christians are described as wearing white garments. Now, this color of white here represents... uh, Uh, At this time, kind of festivity and victory, but also purity and holiness. And so for the Christian, it's a promise that you and I are going to be marked by this kind of purity and holiness. That means, first of all, that we're going to have the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us, clothed in the white garments of His righteousness, but then it means as well that the Spirit of God will increasingly work inside of us bringing about that holiness of life until that time when in glory, we are, as our catechism says, going to be made perfect in holiness. And friends, this is the promise that belongs to every true believer. 
And this is an encouragement to us even now. Friends, you and I will have these white garments in the presence of our God. But the second, this, the second reward that's listed in verse 5 is that I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Uh, this book of life, also called elsewhere the Lamb's book of life, or in the Old Testament, the book of remembrance. Okay? And it's a book that refers to God's sovereign purposes in salvation. We're told elsewhere that our names, if you're a believer, that our names are written in this book before the foundation of the world. And so by saying here that I will never blot your name out of the book of life, it's not saying that we could be erased or we could lose our salvation as if our names could be in and then out and then in again and then out or something like that. But rather, Christ is simply assuring us here that if you have experienced this new life of the Holy Spirit, then you can be assured that your salvation is secure, that, you're, uh, that, that it's more than just simply an experience that you're going through, but rather the roots of your salvation are found in eternity itself. Your name is in His book and nothing shall cause that name to be blotted out. It's a promise of security in His presence. A name that will be written there forever and ever until the time of Christ's return. But then a third reward is mentioned in verse 5. And that is that the Savior then goes on to say, and I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. Uh, These words reflect those that Jesus spoke in Matthew 10.32. When he said, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father in heaven. And dear friends, I can think of few more promises that are more precious than this, more astounding, more heart-stirring than the fact that not only am I going to own Christ as mine, but more importantly, he will own me as his that on that final day, I will hear from the lips of my Savior Himself that I belong to Him. He will confess my name before the Father, before the angels. He will own us to be His. And so each of these things are set out before us. These are the heavenly rewards. Do you see what an encouragement there is here to walk with faithfulness before God? Uh, this are, these are the good things that yet uh, await us. These are the rewards of His grace. So won't we give ourselves to this Christ? But not only does He tell us here uh, that, we will experience the, that we experience the encouragement of recognition, verse 4, and reward, verse 5, but then finally, uh, in, uh, and we're going to see this in verse 1, there's a reminder as well, a reminder. Here we return to the self-identification of Christ in verse 1. And he says here that the words of him who has the spirit, or excuse me, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, 
by the seven spirits of God, that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. But it's a reference to the Holy Spirit in the variety, manifold, uh, perfect operations that he does. It's in the fullness of the Spirit's work. And here he's saying that the Lord Jesus has this Spirit, the seven spirits, meaning the Holy Spirit, in his convicting, saving, enlightening, and renewing work. That it's the, the God of the Holy Spirit who is, making, who is giving us this call. And then the seven stars, the seven stars, and this is found, the reference to this is in chapter 1 and verse 20. The, the reference to the seven spirits is uh, chapter 1 and verse uh, uh, 4. But here are the seven stars, uh, you might recall from our study of chapter 1, refers, prop, refers to the angels of the seven churches, which is probably referring to the pastors of these churches. And so Christ here is saying that I, the one who calls you to these things, is the one who has the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the ministers of the word who are preaching the word, administering the sacrament, shepherding the flock, and are doing these things by the authority of Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus says, these are the things which I have, as it were, in my hand. And so, what an encouragement this is to, to spiritual awakening, because it's saying to us that the Lord is able to do this. The Lord who calls us to be awake can work such an awakening in us by His Spirit and by His Word. When we cry out to the Lord, revive thy church, O God, He is the one who is able to revive His church and to bring new life to that which is dead. He has the Holy Spirit. He has the ministry of the Word in His hand. These are the tools that He uses to bring people from death to life. And so as we, as we, do, as we, as we seek to obey His command and we are watchful and we, uh, and we, and we uh, 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 remember and we hold fast and we repent, we do so knowing that, the Holy, that, that we don't do this by our own power but that the Lord himself can bring new life from the dead. You know, whenever there has been a work of revival, really, in the history of the world, such revival has always begun with the people of God. If we desire for western Massachusetts, northwestern Connecticut, to know a spiritual awakening, to know what it is to be brought out of the doldrums of sin, the expectation of hell, to be brought to new life in Jesus Christ. Don't don't you long to see that? Don't you long to see this region? To to, To have churches that are full, churches which are preaching the gospel of Christ, people brought from death to life. Dear friends, such revival always begins with the people of God themselves. It says the church, first of all, is brought to an awakened state out of its formalism out of its deadness, out of its nominalism, and becomes alive and on fire again for the Lord Jesus. When that happens, dear friends, the world around us is so often impacted. And that's what we need to pray that the Lord might do afresh in our own day. Let's pray together. Lord, our God in heaven, this is 
at all the true state of the church today, and if this at all is the true state of the West Springfield Covenant Community Church, that though we have a reputation for being alive, we are dead. Lord, our God, we pray that you would work in your reviving power to bring new life. Revive your church, O Lord. We pray, O Lord, that where the church throughout the world is marked by a formalism, by going through the motions, by lives that are unchanged by the gospel of Christ, Lord, work this inward change this spiritual heart change so that we might become your people, not in profession only, but in reality. Do this, we pray. Cause your word to have its powerful working in our midst. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. Let's now respond. Uh, We're going to respond by singing hymn number uh, um, hymn number 360 in our hymnals, hymn number 